Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Get that side door. Thank you. Well, Shabbat Shalom. I want to welcome everyone watching from home as well. Shabbat Shalom. And before we start, I want to uh, give a shout out and thank Mona for that great testimony. Very encouraging. You know, part of the key of a vision of this entire shul is, is to uh, be a light, uh, to preach the gospel to all peoples, uh, to have evangelism be a top priority, uh, both for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but also for to be a light to the nations as well. And so be in prayer for, for Mona as she goes out and, and the Lord sends her both to Israel and to the nations. Praise the Lord. Well, we are, uh, have been in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Today is part 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at self-control today. Uh, and because it's such a big topic uh, and so important uh, and so needed, we're going to spend several weeks on this topic. And that's why it's called on the overhead here, part one, because we're going to spend several weeks uh, on the fruit of self-control. But today we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9.23. 1 Corinthians 9.23. And, and uh, Rob Shul, uh, Apostle Paul, says this. I do all this... For the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that that after I've preached to others, I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to all men. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Amen. Galatians 5, 22-23 uh, lists the fruit of the Spirit, uh, uh, which are the character traits of a supernaturally changed heart. Today we begin this multi-week process of looking at the very last one, the fruit of self-control. Now that same word from Galatians 5 appears also here in 1 Corinthians 9.25, but you actually won't see it as self-control because it's translated a bit differently. So 1 Corinthians 9.25, the text says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. But the literal Greek actually says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. In all things. The same word here in 1 Corinthians 9.25 is also the same word in Galatians 5.23 for self-control. Now on the overhead here, this word comes from the root, the Greek word, uh, egokratia, uh, which means ego, self, and kratia, command. Self-control is literally self-command. And it's also a synonym for being free on the overhead again. Uh, because if you're not self-controlled, uh, then you're out of control. And if you're out of control, then you're a slave to other forces. 
So to be self-controlled is actually to be free. And, and Paul is using this illustration of, of the athlete uh, preparing for the games to get across this biblical understanding of self-control. And we need this. Because we are often not in control of ourselves uh, the way that we should be. We have trouble controlling our tongues. We have trouble controlling our thoughts. We have trouble controlling our use of the Internet. We have trouble controlling our feelings and our impulses. Not to mention uh, all the uh, more obvious addictions that we can become enslaved to, such as addictions relating to, to drink or drugs uh, or sex, or pornography, uh, or spending, or gambling, uh, or eating disorders, or anger and rage. And most of us cannot look back at the end of our day without thinking, why did I say that? Or why did I follow that impulse? Why did I give in to that temptation? We all have a problem with self-control. And in this passage here, Paul gives us his secret for developing and walking in the fruit of the spirit of self-control. So in the overhead, he's going to tell us three things in this passage. Number one, he tells us what self-control is. Number two, how it's born within you. And then number three, how it can grow. How it can grow. So self-control, what it is, how, it, how it's born, uh, and how it grows and develops. Uh, so number one, what is self-control? There's a great illustration here in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, Paul talks about if you compete uh, in the games, uh, and he's thinking about the Panhellenic Games, I'm sorry, Panhellenic Games, <laughs> like the Olympic Games, uh, and you're going after a prize, a crown. And notice how Paul says here that this crown doesn't last, because back then you didn't win medals, uh, but you got a crown that was made out of a wreath or a garland, so it quickly faded within a few weeks or months. So Paul's talking about the self-control that, that an athlete has. Because if you want that prize, that crown, then everything else in your life must be under control. Uh, for example, you might want to eat all this delicious food, but you can only eat certain things. You might want to sleep in. You've got to get up and exercise. You might want to stay out late, but you've got to get to bed early. Everything in your life is under control so you can get that prize. That's the illustration Paul uses here about spiritual self-control. And it's telling. Because let me give you two alternative approaches to virtue. There's the ancient approach, which was the Greek idea, which is still with us today, that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And because the body, the Greeks thought, was a source of emotions, and the mind, they thought, was a source of logic and rationality, and that therefore, virtue and self-control was considered the mind over the emotions. Do the logical thing, do the rational thing, control and suppress your emotions. Because your emotions are of your lower nature. The alternative approach to virtue, which we have today, predominantly today, doesn't see your emotions as the problem. And therefore, doesn't see suppressing your emotions uh, as your cure. But rather, actually, just the opposite. Uh, it sees suppressing of your emotions as the problem. The modern approach says don't do self-control. Do self-discovery. Uh, get in touch with your feelings. Uh, find your feelings and, and then express them. Don't let anyone tell you what's right or wrong for you. You find uh, what you feel is right or wrong, what you feel you want to do, 
uh, and you just go ahead and do it. Get in touch with your feelings, express your feelings. That's the modern virtuous ideal. And if you want to see a great example of these two alternative uh, competing approaches, just watch the old Star Trek on TV. Because the original Star Trek, with Spock, gives you the traditional approach of logic and rationality over emotion. Whereas the next generation, with data, gives you the modern approach. Because data was always trying to get in touch with his feelings, right? And express his emotions. So here you see a contrast between the older traditional versus the modern and postmodern approach to emotions and feelings. But the Bible says neither. And here's why. First of all, think of the athlete. Where is the self-control coming from? Uh, he or she has these desires to eat, uh, to sleep in, uh, to drink, uh, to relax. But they're all under control, right? Why? Because the athlete wants that prize. Yeah, he, he wants the crown. Now, is that mind over emotion? No. But because why do you want athletic excellence? Why do you want athletic glory? The desire for athletic glory and excellence is a desire. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's not the conclusion of some logical formula. It's not the conclusion of some rational calculation. No. It's a passion of your heart. And so what Paul's saying here and using this illustration is not like, here's the mind and here's the emotion, but all these various passions are under control because there's one passion that controls all the rest. That's what Paul's saying. There's one passion that masters and orders all the rest. It's not like mind over your passions, but it's having one mastering passion that rules them all. Because you want that prize, therefore everything else is under control. And this goes along with what I'm going to call today biblical psychology. The Bible does not divide human beings into head and heart, uh, into mind and emotion. In fact, interestingly, the Bible often talks about thinking from the heart. And that's because when the Bible uses the word heart, it doesn't mean what we mean when we use that word in the English language. Biblically, the heart was the center of your personality. It was, it was the place where your, your fundamental commitments existed. It's the metaphor for your fundamental trusts uh, and commitments. And so what you think and what you feel and what you decide all basically flow biblically from the heart and the overhead. Because whatever you most trust, whatever you most love, whatever your heart is, mo- is most passionately trusting and loving in, this sets the course for everything else in your life. Again, the overhead. And therefore, if your heart is divided... And you actually don't have one single overriding mastering passion, then your life will be out of control. And you have all kinds of problems. So Paul's illustration here, on the one hand, critiques the ancient idea uh, of mind over emotion, uh, because the desire for the prize isn't mind over emotion. Rather, all of our passions are combinations of both thinking and feeling and the overhead and therefore freedom and self-control what is it freedom and self-control is rightly ordering your loves rightly ordering your passions which is also a critique of the modern approach because the modern approach says find your feelings express them get in touch with your deepest feelings and follow them and express them but that doesn't work because if you try to follow your deepest feelings you're going to find that they're contradictory you're going to be all split up. So, for example, I have a desire to eat chocolate ice cream. 
I also happen to have a desire to lose weight. <laughs> and they're both very strong emotions. <laughs> so, okay, modern man, modern woman, get in touch with your deepest feelings and emotions and follow them. <laughs> I want to eat chocolate ice cream. I want to be thin. Follow them. <laughs> How? You, you just split. <laughs> You're torn between competing emotions. Because these two desires are at loggerheads. Okay, here's another one, a bit more close to home. You're a, a newly married woman with an MBA from a top business school. You want a high-charging a high career. You also want, right away, kids, lots of kids and a big family. You want professional success. You also want a number of children. Uh, and the fact is, if you want to be totally committed to your career and your professional success... I'm sorry to tell you that will get in the way of having and raising children and really nurturing them and training them and educating them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you probably won't be as successful in, in business or career as you would be if you had no kids. And likewise, you're probably not going to be as deep and impactful of a relationship with and an influence on your kids uh, as a mom if you concentrate with all your might on your career. So there are, there are trade-offs in life. These desires are in competition. And you have to choose. St. Augustine years ago came up with this great definition of sin on the overhead. He said that sin is disordered love. It's loving things out of order. So, for example, if you choose individual glory uh, over friendship or over your family, you're going against the way that God created the world. Because the Word of God says relationships, uh, uh, more, the Word of God values relationships over your individual personal glory uh, and your ambition and, 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 and I'm sorry, aggrandizement. If you put your own interest first, uh, ahead of serving others, uh, and ahead of building community, then you're going against the fabric of how God created this world. And that means there's, there's going to be breakdowns. Because you're loving secondary things as if they were primary. And you're loving primary things as if they were secondary. You're loving things out of order. And if you have, a, if you have disordered loves, it leads to breakdown. So the modern idea that you simply get in touch with your feelings, that you discover them, you express them, that makes no sense because we have all these contradictory feelings and desires. So you have to decide which ones are the liberating ones. So, for example, uh, I'm, going to say, I'm going to suggest it's more liberating to use a desire for good health uh, and to lose weight in order to master the desire to eat lots of fattening and healthy foods and lots and lots of chocolate ice cream. <laughs> and indeed, if you're healthy and, and you live longer, then in the long run, even if you only eat it in moderation, you'll probably actually end up eating and enjoying more chocolate ice cream over your lifetime than overindulging uh, and binging in the short term and, and dying sooner. In other words, which of these two desires should be given the priority? Which one should you choose? Which one should you let engage your heart more so they can control and master the other one? You have to find the right desire. That one that fits in with your design. In the case of food, the design of your body. Uh, on the overhead here. So Augustine says, if you rightly order your loves, you'll become a self-controlled, free person. 
Thus, unlike either the ancients uh, or the moderns, they, they say, self-control is not a matter of mind over emotion. And it's not a matter of just getting in touch with your feelings. But rather is loving supreme things supremely. It's finding those supreme things and letting them engage your heart wholly uh, and undividedly. And that's what brings self-control. We can see this right here in our, in our text. Paul uses the, the illustration of an athlete. And he knows it's a limited illustration. Uh, and I know, I know, I personally know some athletes uh, who in their physical life, uh, because they won a certain prize, uh, they want to win this gold medal uh, at the bodybuilding contest or whatever it happens to be, they have in their physical life enormous order. Uh, almost, almost no body fat, perfect diet, uh, eight hours of sleep a night, two to three hours minimum of exercise per day, perfect physical discipline. But their goal, as Paul says, is a crown that will not last. And because they have a limited crown, a limited prize, they only have limited self-control. Because while they have all this physical self-control, they don't necessarily have spiritual self-control. So while their body's in great shape, their soul may be a wreck, including destructive perfectionism, uh, fears, anger, of course, lots of pride and ego, vanity, selfish ambition, uh, obsessive self-centeredness. Paul's saying, if you love the, the supreme thing, which is Messiah Yeshua, if you love the supreme thing supremely, if you seek only that crown, that with the only crown that will last forever, then everything else in your life, if you're able to get your heart fully uh, and supremely rested in that, Everything else in your life will start to come together under God's control. So in the overhead, this leads now to the next question. Number two on the overhead. Uh, what is, next, next overhead, what is that crown that will last forever? What is it? How does this self-control really happen and how does it birth and begin in your life? And because the, the answer here is not quite as simple as you think. Because when we read this reference to a crown that will last forever, we say, oh, I know what that means. That's easy. That's a heavenly crown. Paul's talking about his salvation. Paul's saying that someday I'm going to stand before God, he's saying. And God's going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. I want to please God. I want to do his will. I want to be accepted by him. I want his salvation. Now, do you think that is what Paul is saying here? That that's the prize. That that's the crown that will last forever. I'm going to actually suggest no, that's not the reference. Because if that's what he's saying, uh, that he's working so hard to be a good Yeshua follower so that someday God will accept him and save him, if he's saying that, then he's contradicting everything else he's ever said uh, in all of his epistles in the, in the entire New Covenant. Because everywhere Paul's saying, I am saved, I am accepted, salvation is a free gift, it's not something I run for in order to earn. It's not something I work for in order to merit. For example, he says in 1 Corinthians, right here in our passage, 9.27, he says, I strike a blow to my body to make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. He's not talking about his salvation here. Uh, as if he ever falls, even once, uh, he's going to be disqualified. Uh, As if every time he sins, he loses his salvation. He has to be saved all over again. No, he's not saying that. 
whether you now whether you could ever lose your salvation is another topic for another sermon. <laughs> but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Well, then what is he talking about? What is the crown? The goal that brings self-control that Paul's talking about, this crown, is not just pleasing God. Uh, and, of course, we definitely want to please God. But it's not that general or that abstract. Actually, actually we can see this in 1 Corinthians 9.23. Go back to there, our first verse, 9.23. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now, in the English, it might look like Paul saying, I'm striving with all my might that one day I might experience the blessings of salvation. But, but again, that's not what he's saying. First of all, when he says, I do all this that I might share in its blessings, there are two aspects to this Greek verb, uh, to share, that you won't see in the English. First of all, the word share means to share with others something that you already have. So the first thing Paul's saying is, the great passion of my life is not to get salvation, I've already got it, but to share the blessing that I'm having. Paul's saying, I'm experiencing this bliss, this joy, this beauty of the gospel, and I don't want to share it alone. I'm within anything else, want to make sure that other people are enjoying this also. But that's not all he's talking about. Because this word to share also means, the second thing it means is to participate. And what Paul is saying here is that I want to participate in the gospel in such a way that that all kinds of other people also experience the blessings that I'm having in it. Now, what does that mean? All the commentators actually pretty much agree on this one here. Paul's saying that only does he want to share the gospel, of course, and obey the Great Commission uh, and evangelize other people and see them saved, yes. But he's also saying on the overhead, I want to so embody the gospel. I want to so participate in the gospel. I want to so reflect the gospel. I want to so display the gospel in my life that anyone who looks into my heart and into my life will see how the gospel operates. And they'll see the beauty that I see in it. And this is an absolutely comprehensive life goal. So Paul's goal is not just only to be a witness and to share the gospel and see people come to the Lord, of course, yes. Well, but it's not the only thing. Why? Because that goal alone will not necessarily give you the fruit of self-control. Because you can be a great evangelist and a great speaker and a great presenter and debater and the rest of your life could be a mess and be totally out of control. You can be a great performer, even a great seminary professor or a Bible school teacher, uh, or a gifted evangelist or missionary, while other parts of your life are falling apart. Because if your only goal is to evangelize, that's not the fullness of the gospel. So what Paul is saying here on the overhead again is, the goal for my life is to so embody a Messiah that anyone who looks deep into my heart will see that the gospel and the life of Yeshua and his spirit completely dominates me uh, and consumes me uh, every aspect of my being. If you want to understand how the gospel works, if you want to understand how salvation works, Paul says, my goal is to embody it for you. Let me ask you a question, that's Chaim. Is that the ultimate goal of your life? To embody the gospel? To embody the life of Yeshua? I pray the Spirit of Messiah will flood your hearts with this one overarching and there's one overwhelming passion and desire. That like Paul, our life, 
would display and represent and reflect that goal. On the overhead, Paul's telling us here that if we have this one overmastering, unified passion in your life, if it's the supreme passion of your life, then you will find that it brings all other aspects of your life under self-control. Okay, you say, how do I do this? How do, how do I even get started with it? Here's how. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.26. Paul says, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight, fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I buffet my body. I make it my slave. So after I preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, you know, I'm like a runner. Uh, I don't run like some kind of man running aimlessly. I beat my body and make it my slave. By the way, when Paul says that I beat my body, he's not saying my body's bad. He's not an aesthetic. You know, the ancient aesthetics, they, they taught the, the, the body's bad, the spirit's good. So they beat their body in order to somehow, in their mind, make themselves more spiritual. Paul's not talking about that. Rather, he's working through this metaphor here of the athlete. And he's saying, just like an athlete runs, until I mean, runs and runs until your heart feels like it's going to burst, uh, runs even though you're in agony, and runs and runs and runs. Paul says, I'm like that runner, spiritually speaking. Why do I run? Why do I run? Because of the incredible goal. Paul says that life is like a race. It's not a casual saunter. It's not a walk in the woods. Life is a race. Because life is hard. Life is challenging. Your heart often does feel like it's breaking. Uh, many trials and tests and disappointments and struggles. Paul says life is like a race. He says, I'm in this race, but I'm trying to, to, to run this race in such a way that I get the prize. Uh, that I get my crown. And Paul is not the only one who compares life to a race. The book of Hebrews also says life is like a race. But Hebrews gives us the secret also for winning this race. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance the race that before us. Fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The book of Hebrews is saying, if you want to run well, Look to Yeshua, because he ran well. Yeshua himself was a runner. Yeshua left heaven, he came to earth, and he ran the race as a human being. And he ran all the way to the cross. And he endured. And he never gave up. Even though not only did he feel like his heart was breaking, but his heart actually did break. You know, When they speared his side, out came blood and water, indicating a ruptured heart. Well, well, why did he run? For the prize. What was the prize? The joy set before him. Okay, what was that? What joy didn't he already have in heaven? Because he's with the Father from, from all eternity. What joy did he have to come to earth to win? Did he come to earth and run for the glory of the Father? 
Yes, but he already had that glory. He was living with the Father of glory from all eternity. But he already had that. Was he, was he trying to love the Father? Yes, but, but he already had that. He already loved and was loved by the Father perfectly. So what prize did he not have and could only win if he came to earth and ran the race and went to the cross? What's the answer? You and you and you and you and me. You were Yeshua's crown. You were Yeshua's glory. You were his most precious treasure. And do you realize that he was the only human being who ever ran the race who had deserved the crown of life? Yeshua was the only human being who ever loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Which is how you and I are supposed to be living. But none of us love God as we should. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. We are all disqualified from the race. None of us should ever get that crown. She was the only human being who ever ran the race who deserved the crown of life. But when he ran that race perfectly, and he got to the end of his life, what happened? What did he get? Yeah, he got a crown all right. It was a crown of thorns. But he took that crown of thorns that, that you and I actually deserve for the way in which we, we run. Because we stumble and we fall all the time and we're disqualified. But he took that crown of thorns that you deserve, that I deserve, so that when you repent and when you believe on trust in him, you get that crown of life that his running of the race earned. And that is amazing and it is awesome. It's astounding. And whenever you see something of incredible beauty, you want others to see it too, don't you? Uh, and to share in his blessings and his joy. So, for example, you hear this incredible Beethoven symphony. Don't you just want to grab your friend or, or family member and urge them to hear it also? You say, listen to this. Because you want them to enjoy it and say, say wow, just like you did. Now, why do you feel this urge to, to share with what you, them with what you experienced? Well, of course, yes, on the one hand, yes, you love your friend. But also because your friend's joy in the same beauty completes your joy in it. The more he or she uh, enjoys what you found beautiful, the more you enjoy it also. It's, it's just natural. Uh, uh, and what Paul's saying here is that when I see what Yeshua did for me, how he ran the race, how he took the crown of thorns so that I might have the crown of life, when I realize that, that I'm his crown, that you're his crown, when I realize he loves me like that, that's beautiful. And that captures my imagination. And it captures my heart. Psalm 86, verse 11 says, Unite my heart to fear thy name. On the overhead. Psalm 86, 11. You see, our hearts are divided. And that's why we don't have self-control. Unite my heart. And seeing the beauty of Yeshua and what he's done for you, that's what will do it. That's what will unite your heart to fear his name. Look at Yeshua, look at the gospel, look at the cross, look at the, the incredible beauty uh, and the love of all that Yeshua suffered and accomplished for you out of his great love for you. 
contemplate on this, meditate on this. It becomes the overmastering and the overpowering passion of your life. This is what and only what will unite your heart, unite all your passions into this one overarching desire. This is what will unite your life. And then you'll finally have what you need to bring every part of your life, every part of your being under self-control. So on the overhead, number three, let me close now with some practical guidelines on how to grow in the fruit of the spirit of self-control. We're going to turn to chapter 10 for this last few little minutes of, of practical application. First Corinthians 10, 11 to 13 gives us practical steps will help you grow in the fruit of self-control. And those three steps are number one, the Bible, uh, and over, next over, on the overhead, uh, number two, community, number three, trouble. The Bible, community, trouble. These three things uh, will, will press you to look to Yeshua, the author and the finisher of your faith. And the more you look to him and the more you love him and truly see him and abide in him, the more your life will be under the control of the fruit of the spirit of self-control. So first, First uh, Corinthians 10 verse 11. These things happen as examples and were written down as warnings for us on, on, upon whom all the end of the ages has come. Now, the context here, if you go back in the chapter, the context here is Paul talking about the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and how the Israelites, how we failed to, to trust God in the wilderness, how we failed to obey him. We were forced to wander for 40 years. And Paul, Paul is warning us here not to do the same, not to be tempted like they were. Uh, now, what is temptation? A temptation is a test of your self-control. Whenever Yeshua is tempted, whenever he's attacked by Satan, uh, attacked by the religious leaders, when he's attacked by, by his executioners uh, and crucified, how did he handle every test? With Scripture. He quotes Scripture. He knows the Bible inside and out. He was so saturated in the Scriptures, that whatever happened, the Word of God immediately comes to his mind. It's, it's like you prick him and he bleeds the Scripture. <laughs> That's the first practical tool you need for self-control. On the overhead, no matter what your problem with self-control is today, if when you're being tempted, the scriptures come right to your mind, it's an amazing help. Because it automatically turns your heart to look to Yeshua. And he is the author and the finisher of your faith. You need to know the scripture. You need to memorize the scripture. You need to be so saturated in the scripture that when the test comes, it automatically comes to your mind. That's the first practical way for you to grow uh, in the fruit of self-control. Scripture. Uh, number two, uh, um, community. First Corinthians ten twelve. So if you think you're standing firm, uh, be careful you don't fall. This is an exhortation here. Paul is warning the Corinthians not to be overconfident. He's telling them, you're overconfident, and therefore you're setting yourself up for a fall. Paul's rebuking them. He's exhorting them on the overhead. And you yourself won't, will not grow in self-control unless you're willing to open yourself up to a few other believers who can hold you accountable, who can speak into your life. Hebrews 12, verse 13. Exhort each other daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You've got to have people who can come and talk to you, who can speak into your life, uh, who can call you out, or you will not grow in self-control. So number one, the Bible. Number two, community. And then number three, finally, uh, community and accountability. And number three on the overhead, finally, uh, trouble on the overhead. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. Next overhead. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Because, because when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. No one grows in self-control unless tests seize you uh, and difficulties come upon you. Uh, and you must cling to the Lord in his faithfulness and he will get you through it. You don't, you don't, you don't really even know where you have problems with self-control unless and until tests and temptations come into your life, which show you that you really don't have self-control the way you thought you did on the overhead. And therefore, unless you have difficulties that drive you into the arms of God uh, and difficulties that drive you into the arms of community, your friends, and drive you into the scriptures, you will not grow in self-control. But if every time these tests and trials happen, you cry out to the Lord, Yeshua, make yourself a living and bright reality to me. Be more and more real to me in the face of these temptations than you've ever been before. He will be. He is faithful to flood you with his presence if you cry out to him in the midst of your tests and tribulations and temptations. And the more and more you will, you do this, the more and more you will grow in self-control. Amen. Let's stand and pray. And the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, today we want to confess that we all struggle with self-control. And though we want to confess today that often our struggles are secret in the dark. Of course, we also have obvious struggles with self-control that everybody, all our family and friends can see like anger and impatience, uh, overeating. But there's also a lot of struggles that we keep pretty secret. And so we pray to you today, Lord, Lord Yeshua, to take your searchlight of your word with the power of your spirit and take these words of the scripture, put them into our hearts where we keep certain things very dark and very secret because we don't want to admit our problems. We don't know how to overcome them. And I pray the words of this text from your word will illuminate our hearts so that we know what we should be doing. And we pray you will help us to be more accountable to each other, to be in your word, to be more accountable to each other, that we would cling more to you, that we deal with these problems because these problems are hurting us. They're hurting our walk with you. They're hurting our ability to help others, to share in the blessings of your gospel. So Lord Yeshua, help us grow in grace in the fruit of the spirit of self-control and in knowing you more fully and more intimately. We pray this all in your holy name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.